This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have something a little different. It's a look back on some key figures from World War II from Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. The series of short subjects was hosted by Harvey over ABC from 1976 until his death in 2009, with occasional guest hosting by his son, Paul Harvey Jr. This episode features four short profiles. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts where you can find links to past episodes and other information. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, the rest of the story. Lenny was a freelance writer... Through one book and an array of magazine and newspaper articles, he was growing a worldwide literary reputation. And he was versatile. He wrote ponderous prose and wry humor equally effectively. And now he's back in New York, as so many times before, launching another lecture tour, and this particular night visiting a longtime friend. The December chill had tightened its grasp on the city by nightfall. Eight o'clock or so, it was quite cold at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 67th Street. The writer would hurry across Fifth Avenue as quickly as possible. But a moment later, there was a squeal of brakes and a thud. Passersby converged at the curbside. Lenny had been hit by a taxicab, the driver of which was by now trembling, kneeling over his unintended victim. Get an ambulance, somebody shouted. An onlooker ran to a nearby phone booth. And then the writer opened his eyes. It's my fault, he managed to say. And then he closed them again. Lenny was taken to Lenox Hill Hospital, alive. In fact, after doctors examined him, their prognosis was good. The patient had a sprained right shoulder and many lacerations. There was also a touch of pleurisy, but he'd be all right. The cab driver was still trembling when he visited Lenny in the hospital. And once again, the writer insisted that the cabbie was completely innocent in the matter. The two shook hands. Lenny even gave the driver a personally inscribed copy of his latest book. And something even more pleasant came of all this. Because the bedridden author, with all that time on his hands, dictated an article right there in his hospital room. An article for immediate publication describing his New York misadventure. Lenny even received $2,500 for the piece, more than enough to subsidize a restful vacation in the Bahamas. 
where, incidentally, the writer was nearly run down by another car. It ought to be mentioned that the accident-prone author whose peril you've just relived lived to a ripe old age. But he was no ordinary writer when you met him that night in Manhattan. In fact, he was the highest-paid freelance writer of his time. Now, you may never have read one word that he wrote, but the world remembers the history he spoke. Because the New York visitor one December did not quite make it to the home of his friend, renowned financier Bernard Baruch. The writer named Lenny, who transformed a near-fatal accident into a $2,500 vacation in the Bahamas. He was also the superstar statesman whose very presence among us inspired the Allies to victory in World War II. You know Lenny. Winston Leonard Spencer as Sir Winston Churchill. So knowing that, you might guess this. That when the Winston Churchill was run down by a taxi cab in the streets of New York, it really wasn't the cab driver's fault. Because Sir Winston, being British and attempting to cross an American street, well, he looked to the right, and yes, of course, he was hit from the left. Now, you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. Behold a man. His dying wife has left him. He's sitting in an upper floor apartment, his head in his hands, the cries of two infant children searing his soul. He is otherwise utterly alone. Pushing fifty and professionally preoccupied, he cannot care for his young son and daughter by himself. He can scarcely attend to his own needs. He is, in a word, desperate. And if any one attribute could generally account for his predicament, it would be that he all his life has been unlucky in love. And it's odd because Al was what we used to call a good catch. First of all, he was handsome. He had a powerful physique, a jutting chin, dramatic eyebrows, and a, a sweeping handlebar mustache, which was quite fashionable in his day. He also had an important government job and an impressive uniform to go with it, so Al could have had just about any girl he wanted. And, in fact, he did. But despite his eligibility and the number of women who so vigorously sought to put it out of its misery, Al just could not seem to find romantic happiness for long. The problem was not impatience to commit himself. Al was 36 before marrying for the first time, and then it was to an experienced, stable woman, a widow considerably older than he. She, Anna, did, however, contract tuberculosis, and when she became an invalid, Al began searching elsewhere for comfort. And he didn't have far to look. One of his numerous affairs, more serious than the rest, was a waitress named Fanny who worked in the same inn where Al and Anna lived. You talk about a mixed-up mess of a man. Meanwhile, Al attempted to provide full-time care for his ailing wife by summoning his teenage niece, Clara, to come live with them. But the indiscretions of her husband became too much for Anna, and so after seven years of marriage, she sued for a legal separation. That left the way somewhat clearer for Al and Fanny, 
who set up house and began having children. They married officially three years later when Anna died, but guess what? Within a few months, Fanny came down with tuberculosis and was sent away to recuperate. She would live only a few months more. Al, you see, was unlucky in love, as were the women who loved him. And illness aside, the misfortune was mostly of his own design. But this, Al determined, must change. With two motherless babies to nurture, he must reorder his life, must find a responsible woman to look after them, preferably a wife. And this time would be different, the middle-aged Austrian customs inspector promised himself. This time he would issue something lasting and something of value from his heretofore disheveled existence. This time, he vowed, his luck would change. So Al once again summoned his young niece, Clara, to his side. And eventually he proposed to her and married her. And together they gave each other and the world a child. Named Adolf Hitler. Unlucky in love. Oh, yes. Only now you know the rest of the story. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, the rest of the story. Fun Kwai. Fun Kwai was the cry that shot from the shore. The cry that rang across the water as Warren sailed by. Fun Kwai. In Chinese, Fan Kwai means foreign devil. That's what they thought of Warren. A great many of them, anyway. Still at least as many more longed to see him coming and yearned, if not for him, for what he brought with him, because Warren was an opium trader, a dealer, a pusher, and it was he who transported the narcotic yielded from the pink and white fields on the fertile Ganges plain. East Indian opium... The real stuff. In season, Warren and his Fun Kwai, his colleagues in the opium trade, were confined by the Chinese to a, to a solitary riverfront block in Canton. There were 13 two-story factories on that block where the pushers lived and worked. In the off-season, Warren resided in comparative luxury on Macau, a port off the South China coast. The voyage from Macau to Canton was 85 miles by dispatch boat, a vessel propelled by oarsmen and crimson sails. It was a pleasant journey, cruising among islands of iridescent green foliage and orange groves and ancient pagodas, and still each time Warren made that otherwise delightful trip, islanders would see him pass. They would run to the shore and call to him, Fan Kwai, they would cry, Foreign Devil, Fun, quiet, and often they would make menacing gestures, chopping with hands at their own necks the unmistakable threat of death. But Warren was not intimidated. He knew the emptiness of their threats. 
He knew the virtual indispensability of his business to a nation enslaved by drugs. Anyway, Warren was just too rich to care, and there was no room for fear in his line of work, nor for conscience. From Cantani once wrote, quote, I do not pretend to justify the opium trade in a moral and philanthropic point of view, but as a merchant I insist that it has been a fair, honorable, legitimate trade, and to say the worst of it, liable to no further or weightier objections than is the importation of wines and brandies and spirits into the United States, end quote. Mm. Warren was head of the shipping firm of Russell and Company, largest of the American opium dealers, and third largest in the world. By late 1840, the Chinese emperor had begun feuding with the British, so Americans like Warren, who were neutral in the conflict, benefited business-wise, and thus was laid the foundation for a family fortune. A family fortune on the wasted bodies of innumerable Chinese opium addicts. Now, Warren's grandson was later asked about the old family enterprise, as horrible and degrading as prostitution, the questioner called it. And in reply, the grandson said nothing. After all, what could one say? Especially one responding, especially one responding from the White House. You see, Warren, America's number one pusher, the merchant who became a millionaire through narcotics traffic by the age of 48. He was Warren Delano II. That's right, the father of Sarah Delano, the grandfather of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Only now, only now you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. Miss Hosier stared intently at the little creature scuttling determinedly across the cold stone floor. A beetle. A beetle is what it was, just an ordinary beetle of some sort. It had crawled up from among the roses, perhaps to commune with her and the young man sitting beside her. It was an ideal setting in which to commune, after all, a gazebo in a flower garden. An ornate miniature temple to the goddess Diana, no less. Miss Hosier and her beau had hurried there, seeking shelter from a sudden cloudburst, and now they were ostensibly waiting for the summer shower to pass. But both knew what this really was, the young man's final opportunity to propose marriage to the young woman. And yet, in awkward silence, they sat. And thus, with nothing else on which to focus, was Miss Hosier's attention drawn to that intrepid little intruder at her feet, the black-shelled beetle marching with resolute solemnity across the floor of Diana's temple. She glanced at the uncomfortably quiet gentleman on the stone bench beside her, and this time she thought, yes, this time she knew. On the other hand, she must not allow these moments of waiting to mature into an endless procession of the same. The couple had courted for five months. They'd been vacationing among hopeful family chaperones for the past three days. The deciding moment had arrived, Miss Hosier concluded. What better place than the Temple of Diana to expect an omen, a portent through which to divine the course her life must take? And then, in a flash, it came to her, as though whispered by the huntress goddess herself. There was a long crack in the temple stone floor. 
a noticeable flaw toward which the black-shelled beetle was presently, if unwittingly, journeying, if Miss Hosier's gentleman friend did not propose to her before that insect had reached the defining mark, she would rise, politely excuse herself, and walk away, never to see him again. And so, hands folded patiently in her lap, she waited and watched. The beetle, oblivious, continued on his pilgrimage. The young man remained silent. Closer and closer to the crack the beetle drew. Yet not a word, but then... Then, when the little knight in black armor was no more than a finger's width from his unintentional goal, Miss Hosier's bow cleared his throat, and in a soft breaking voice, he asked, Will you marry me? Well, through tears of joy, she replied, Oh, yes. And the following month they were joined together until death did them part fifty-seven years later. For once upon an August morning in a Grecian gazebo on the grounds of Blenheim Castle, a reticent young man unknowingly raced an insect for the hand of a fair maiden named Clementine Hosier. And the bow who beat the beetle found his voice forever after. The world remembers and reveres him as Winston Churchill. Only now you know the rest of the story.